Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future. This episode of the podcast is supported by Bitwax, the online vinyl store that accepts cryptocurrencies as form of payment alongside standard card payments. Now, I used to own a record shop many years ago, and I still have a solid vinyl collection in my studio behind me today. There's nothing better than receiving your favorite new piece of music through the post, peeling off the plastic and actually touching the music. So go on, treat yourself today. Go to www.bitwax.co.uk and order some music. You can find more episodes of this podcast, including chats with James Hype, Ben Hemsley, Night Funk, Nathan C., Tim from the Utah Saints, and many, so many more. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, and now, including this very episode on YouTube for that full video experience. Simply search Felix Leiter in the house or visit youtube.com forward slash DJ Felix Leiter. Don't forget to subscribe to stay updated. In this episode of the podcast, I chat with Northeast legend and all-round nice guy, Smooth. You may know him from Smooth and Terrell, the band he co-founded, and they are killing it right now, by the way. But we go right back to early technical wizardry he used to mix tracks and start creating at an early age. His love of collecting music in its many formats. In fact, he receives a record delivery mid-chat. We talk record deals, touring the world and clubs in Newcastle back in the day. He's such a wicked guy. I could have talked to him for hours. You're in for a treat. So let's get into it. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are. Smooth, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hello. Hello, uh, nice to be here. Uh, we're, yeah, we're having some we're having some slight technical glitches, but we're going to give it. We're going to hammer it out in the northeast, and we're going to you know this is why we need this is why we need what do they call it the, the industrial northern powerhouse or something. We all need better broadband. <laughs> we, we do like it's. Uh, I've always said this that we we're so well not just the north. I, I just think England in general, what we want and what we demand for the internet is it's just nowhere near the Nanigwap here, and uh, obviously. You know, virgin of people like that will say, oh, well, yeah, but you can spend another £150 and then you get, like, slightly better broadband than anyone else. It's a bit like a Tory way of thinking. It's like sitting first class on a train and having that free sandwich. You know what I mean? It's bollocks, isn't it? I like how we've gone fucking political straight around. Fucking buzzing about this. I can tell this is going to be a belter. Um, yeah, well, it's no, it's nice to have one in the northeast. Uh, I've been a big fan of yours for years, uh, so it's going to be really interesting getting into your story. Um, but yeah, I want to take you back, you know, just through the because it's interesting to get a different perspective on things. And obviously, we're going to talk about your your DJ life, but obviously, you have this huge part of your life, which is which is live performance. Um, how have the last nine months played out for you? Um, it's okay, actually. Uh, I think I think everybody went through that like, oh my god, my life's over moment. You know, like anxiety, watching the news, feeling worse and worse and worse. And then I, I just stopped watching the news, and and it, it's a state of mind. I mean. I work from home anyway. Um, I think it was because my son and my wife were here all the time that it sort of changed the world a little bit. I mean, there was something said on the radio I heard that they, it, it was the equivalent of seeing a partner for eight years in this lockdown. <laughs> That's insane how how little time you must spend with them. You know what I mean? Um, so and then and then I, I just kind of cracked on and you know we, we had the album coming out. It was already made 
record label said, do you want to delay it? I was, nah, let's get it out. Um, and we made some videos. We managed to get some content out and that we'd already recorded. So everything sort of was all right. Um, we do a radio station. Um, so that's been quite good, having that going every week as well. I think what people miss, like, so to speak, is just like some kind of normalization, you know, like where you can just, oh, yeah, on Tuesday, I've got to go there and do this or and. I don't go to the gym or anything like that, but I can now see why that was so valuable to some people. You know, to have that taken away from them is just like, well, what the hell am I going to do? Do you know what I mean? It feels like we're going to do this slightly in reverse, but I want to I want to talk about it because it, it, it's super um, important to me as, as an artist who releases music. So how did you find the process of releasing that album within lockdown? Because for me, and this is why I want to get your perspective on it, for me, I, I've struggled with releasing music this year because I feel like, in it, 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 music takes life in moments on dance floors, on terraces, as the sun's coming up, as the sun's going down, doing things that you shouldn't be, you know, being with people who you want to be with. Like that's where music to me creates emotion and memory. And that's why hits become hits. And that's why, you know, it's that like if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, did it make a sound? And it's like, you know, if if that hit record that was released whatever summer was was released this summer, well, it wouldn't have been because that's the way the music industry works. So <laughs> I'm just interested in, in your experience of how that, that album, when, when was it released, first of all? Like, you rep it, like, you know, shout it out, make sure people go and check it out. But how was that experience different this year than it has been in the past for albums? Um, well, when you finish an album, uh, generally it takes six months to get it in the machine, as they say, like into the press and then the press and plant and then all the media and all that. So it, it, it's, it's kind of like you, you just, you sort of you finished it and you go yes and then you go oh now I've got to wait for all this to see what the reaction is going to be and obviously this album was not radically different but it was different from our previous albums and um so it was it, it, it was weird like I said the record label said oh do you want to stall it and I was like well what's the point we've already like put the schedule in what's it gonna it's not gonna make no difference so they went oh no I just thought we'd ask um and it was really exciting because we'd managed to uh, put a video together a couple of videos actually like a lyric video, which was an animation from a company that helped us work with it called Craven. So all of these little things like make a big picture when you're trying to like release something, you need content, you need something else, you need to spin on it. You can't just put the music out there and go, everyone buy it. I mean, we're, we're really lucky that we've got a fan base, yeah. whereas a, a lot of bands, up and coming bands, especially in the Northeast, they haven't even got on that ladder yet, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, uh, we've sort of survived from our fans, you know, like, because they, they want to see us, they want to buy the goods. So I think that's why the album went number one. It was like everyone was so desperate, like, for something that they, they all just jumped on this album. And initially when the album came out, it was a it was a shock to the record label. They were like, well, they didn't hear the full album, actually. To be fair, they only heard three or four songs, which I don't like doing because I believe it's like, would you read, like, four pages out of a book? You know what I mean? You, you need to get the book, you know what I mean, and read it from beginning to end, because that's what an album is supposed to be. I'm talking about vinyl, really. I mean, that's what I always think. That The whole project, every time we do them, it's always vinyl. It's always that full-length, long player, you know? Yeah. And the record kick company sort of freaked out, went, whoa, this is going to alienate your fans. Do you not think? And I was like, well, if it does, it does, but we've already made it now. <laughs> so it's it, it, if it does, the, the, the damage is done, but let's just see. And... <laughs> It, it actually went the other way where it's probably gone down as the greatest album that we've made. Amazing. So 
and it went number one. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, there's, there's a couple of interesting things that that raises to me, which is, that's great. You know, I love your mindset on it. I also love your mindset about the long player, the vinyl, and that's the experience of the album, and that's how it should be listened to. It's interesting because... I think your album would have done phenomenally well, even if there hadn't been a pandemic. But it's also interesting because a lot of artists will have chosen to withhold stuff and will have chosen to, you know, not release an album and everything else. So it's also, it it cuts both ways. Because as you previously mentioned, there's some some emerging artists on there, whether they be DJs, whether they be bands, whether, you know, be producers, whatever, that haven't got enough fans and haven't got enough... Um, traction within the industry, as it were, to to make things happen in this pandemic because they haven't had enough. But there are also huge artists out there who've decided to hold things back. So it's yeah. created a really interesting lane for people, potentially like yourselves, to go out there and to succeed because there's a vacuum of music that people want and demand. So when you put something into there, people devour it because it's exciting. It's something. It's giving some some people some happiness and some hope and some emotion in in some pretty d- dire times. Um, so I think that's it's really interesting that that's that's how it's it's gone down for you so it's been a positive experience well like it came i think it came out in june okay. uh, if, if i remember rightly but um I, I was listening to six music the other day and the dubs were on and they were getting interviewed and they've got a new album that's just come out and apparently they finished ages ago but i think the record company or the the band decided uh to to do that thing to to all oh, let's not release it because it's like freaky times but yeah. these freaky times aren't going away. Do you know what I mean? It's like so they've eventually just gone. You know what? Let's release it. But I think they were messing on with the master, and that was their excuse anyway. But <laughs> like, actually, the stuff I heard, uh, I was blown away. I was like, this is amazing. Um, so <laughs> yeah. What's, but, yeah. What's your it, thoughts on that? As far as the kind of the live thing. So obviously, it's been a success, right? Obviously, it is as an album, it is a success. But. Do you feel anything's been lost by not being out there touring it? Do you feel like anything has changed within the way that people have, you know, I mean, like I say, it's, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth because you've said it's a success and it's, it's been viewed as such by the fans, but have you missed, well, it's a stupid question, obviously you've missed it, but how has it been without touring it? How has it been out been without it, being out there in front of people? Well, it's two things, really. It's like, the you know, we tour hard. We always do. We have done for 10 years, like, I think so far, like the last count, it was just over a hundred gigs that we've lost already um, s- since the first thing actually kicked off. So it's just like, and financially it's a blow, but um, it's kind of like, you know, like I said earlier, we're lucky that we've got the fans to support us and we've got like, you know, people buying products. So the touring is only one aspect of what we do. You know, like, whereas for some bands, it's like, it's the 50 quid in the pocket that they need every single week. That's gone. So like, yeah, that was a blow that we lost all the tour that I'd worked so hard on joining all the dots and, you know, making it happen. But it was more, it was more, we'd, we'd made a dance album. Well, it was our version of a dance album. We'd put more dance music into it rather than, you know, I hate that term dance music, but it is just called dance. So it was a dance album, but, uh, we we have never like really seen anyone lose their mind lose their mind to it in a club or even yeah. heard it as because you've got you you've got like the way it's produced and the way that it's made in the studio yeah um, and mixed is to sound like what it sounds like but the live experience is never going to sound like that obviously we had that in mind when we were sort of recording it we could say oh yeah because we were using like um, synth effects through the bass and stuff with like, it oh that's great we can do that live like we're actually playing the bass so that was all in mind but we've we've never really had a chance to show people like how we can do it live although we have done some streaming stuff but but the dance original album that we record in the studio has never been felt in the club 
mm-hmm. and with like you know the, those Sonics and seeing people in a club atmosphere just lose their marbles like in dancing and that's what dancing's for it's you're forgetting your troubles and you're, you, yeah. you're getting high off music you know so it, it's a real shame that that hasn't happened and I don't know. Will people still be bothered about the album when when the clubs finally are open? I if think they ever will. Are. Yeah, of course they you know will. I mean? they'll, they'll be dying to come and hear it live and lose their shit. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm gonna, well, I'm gonna. It. Well, I'm sure we'll come back to, to smooth and the smooth and Terrell project, but I'm gonna take you back um, as was the format of this um, podcast too. I mean, I became aware of you as a DJ, and you know, and, and I always kind of when I first started to see you, was always blown away by the skills and the techniques and stuff. So we're gonna we're gonna focus on that a little bit and then and then move throughout your career but i want to take you right back way before djing way before everything else right to your kind of childhood and i want to get those first musical influences like as a child where's who's playing the music what are you hearing what are those uh, really early musical influences in your life uh there's there's like three main elements like obviously my dad had records and he used to play records like when i was titchy uh, and it, it was always four o'clock in the morning, really loud. And it was uh, mainly on, on the rock side of things, but not rock, rock music. You know, he liked Hendrix, he liked the animals, he liked um, them, um, uh, Van Morrison, Cat Stevens, Nina Simone, Ray Charles, like really eclectic, but like it didn't really do anything for me. Do you know what I mean? I, I didn't really get it. You know what I mean? The thing that got me first was like electronic, well, kind of boogie. Um, that kind of music, like that late disco, boogie elements in electro, that series that came from Street Sounds, and going to Woolworths Records and buying these Street Sounds compilations that were all boogie and funk. And then it, just after that, it was like electro hit, and it was like, wow, this is amazing. So I got into Breakdance because of Beat Street, the movie, and Breakdance, the movie, which was terrible, but it, it's all we had. So it was like, you know, it, it, it was like, it was such a good time as a kid. I was like into dancing. That's what got me in, in, into music. And I got into rhythm. And I think that's the power of the drums. But I, I very quickly discovered um, cut and paste music. That was like a, a, a total love. I was like fascinated by it. You know, like stuff like uh, Dynamics 2 and Mars, um, Cold Cut, people like that. They were like later on. But there was a lot of early stuff that I really got into. And, and it was like, this is amazing. You can make music like this by chopping music up so all i had in the bedroom was like my sister's hi-fi wired up to my dad's second-hand hi-fi and then i'd made this sort of custom mixer where i used the balance as a crossfader like to scratch really badly and I, and then i'd made a switch where you normally put the headphone in and you press the headphone on but i'd put something around the switch that kind of half turned the switch off and i used that to transform <laughs> scratching that's how i learned to scratch that's it was amazing. insane it is insane. I was about uh, twelve at this age. This is nineteen eighty one, and um, and then I, I I I very quickly discovered that I could do pause mixing. I don't know how I'd heard of it, but I just did. And um, so it, pause mixing is when you use a cassette. And actually, I think I've still got the original machine here. Where is it? It's 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 definitely here. I'll see if I can find it in a sec. But like basically, you press play and record, and you hold the pause down, and you catch the beat. So you have to catch it right on and you don't move it until you change the record again and then you catch it. So it could be like the kick drum could be just and then you've got that bit and then you get another record, you you put it on and you catch the snare drum and then off and then the next bit and the next bit. And it's like really intricate. 
Anyway, a, a few years later, I went to college and uh, I showed these guys who were like skateboard nerds and they were like crazy guys and they're all into like graffiti art as well because that was the thing getting into hip-hop culture it was it was everything it was like human beatboxing rap and scratching i did all of them and none of them any good really like you know <laughs> never mastered any of them but it was the fact that i could do all of them that was like that was more interesting to me you know um so yeah and and i played this pause mix to my friends and they really inspired me they were like that's amazing like you should release that and then i'd start getting these ideas of like wow so i sent them into radio stations never got any replies classic but it, it didn't stop me it was just how can i how can i release a record that was the thing how can i how can i make a record out of other people's records sampling in other words that's where it all really began answer your long question no that's 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 <laughs> wicked i want to i, I want to take you because I'm, I'm interested in parts of that journey so we're, we're going to go back a little bit can you remember because it's always a favorite question of mine and i think it's it's, it's interesting especially with like people of, of, of our gener- generation-ish because as younger people won't have the same answers in 10 years' time. But can you remember the first bit of music that was yours, whether it was given to you or whether you bought it with your own money, but you held it? Do you know what I mean? Whether it was a piece of vinyl, whether it was a cassette tape. Can you remember that first piece of music that was, that was yours? The first, um, well, I've got three, really, and one of them's really bad. Uh, the first album we got was actually, we went to a record shop in Sunderland and um, me sister was in, uh, she was a year older than me. She was taking, she did every lesson. Do you know what I mean? She went ballet, she went tap. Well, she wasn't allowed to go to tap. That was one thing she wasn't allowed to do. But she did everything <laughs> and like, you know, kind of did it for a bit and then moved on to something else like like quite a lot of kids do. And me mom just, yes, let's go to the next one. And I, I remember going to the record shop. She was doing disco lessons, right? Disco dancing lessons. And, uh, you know, Bearing in mind, this is like 1978, you know what I mean? So it was a long time ago. And I remember standing there, being really young, looking up the counter and being fascinated by all the records around the walls. And my mom saying to the guy behind the desk, what can I give my daughter? She's doing disco lessons, like disco dancing lessons. And he went, oh, you want this? And he, he must have been a cool kid. And he just sold her this album. And I was like, wow, look at that artwork. That's amazing. They got it home. They put it on. And my sister just went, I don't like it. Because back then you, you never had listening yeah. booths and, and yeah. they didn't play your music in shops, you know what I mean? It was a weird thing. So yeah, they mad. got home and, they were, and, and my sister went, It's crap, that. What's this shit? And just walked away. And my mum went, oh, And I went, That's amazing. I love it. So that was really the first album I ever got. Well, that I didn't get, but I got. And it was Funkadelic. Um, wow. um And it was One Nation Under a Groove. And you know the artwork, it's got like the yeah. felt yeah. tip drawn of the naked lady with all the squirm coming out of her it's just psychedelic so like for for like a seven-year-old kid to have that must have been pretty weird um uh the first seven inch i got was my birthday and it was satakan i feel for you i was obsessed with that record i still am uh i still am and um and i went to a record shop and i bought in the cheap bin because i didn't have much money but i i used to go to charts records in sunderland and I used to always shop in the cheap inn, but the first 12 I bought was Stephen Tintin Duff Me, Kiss Me With Your Mouth, because I'd heard it on the radio and I loved it. But, but it was like 10p or something, because no one wanted it. It's a couple of points, because we've, we've talked about on the podcast before, which is, A, yeah, how fucking bizarre is it that you used to buy music that you couldn't listen to? Do you know what I mean? Like, people <laughs> yeah. now would just be like, kids now would be like, Are you, what the fuck? You, like, you went into a record shop and just bought something you'd never heard before. That's insane. Yeah, it is, um, it is. And then... And then oh, there's the doorbell. This is a normal day in Smooth's house. It's always just loads and loads of records. <laughs> so, are they, and are they all? Are they all stuff that you yeah, delivered every day? Are what? they all stuff that? So this, yes, yeah, so Smooth's just had a delivery. Are they all stuff that you've bought, or are there some of those promos, or what's what's the kind of in that pile? Do you think? Uh, I guess 
bits of both. I do get sent stuff still, um, and I buy a lot as well. Um, and I, I've got too many. I've actually run a, run out of space. So I'm gonna have to sell some. Yeah, so because <laughs> we'll, we'll come on to that. So obviously that was <clears throat> they were the first records that you got. Yeah, and you, you've you've touched on so many. Like obviously we could talk about so much stuff for so long, but I have to kind of try and keep it interlinear to some sort of story. But like you're obviously talking about dancing, you know, you're obviously talking about the graffiti, you're obviously talking about the, the, the kind of the so many facets that there were the beatboxing. Did you did you quite quickly become like a record collector, like a music collector? Was that something that has been in you from from a really early age? I think initially I was I was kind of more fascinated by the turntable itself, how it okay. revolved. I remember putting lights on it and watching the lights going around, you know, like that. There was something that physical thing was like, wow. And then I think once I'd got like where did you first, okay, so where did you where did you first see it? Where did you first? This is another question which I, I should have maybe asked instead of. So when was when was the first time that you saw turntables? When was the first time that you saw someone DJing on them? When was the first time you got a chance to touch them and play with them? I never did. Like me, me dad had a turntable, um, and I used to, I, you know, I wasn't allowed to touch it really. But even though I did, but. Um, <laughs> I've got another story about that later on. It's really funny. Uh, why am I just telling it now? Years later, my dad had a record player, um, which I've still got now. And uh, he died years ago. But I've got this record player, and it's this big, white turntable. It's, it's really nice. It's got this variable speed on where you can lift it up and move it up and down. So, obviously, that was a big thing because it was like, oh, you can beat match with that rather than have to push it around. But I had <laughs> another set of upstairs when, when I used to live with my dad, like this is years ago. And I ran downstairs put a record on ran upstairs and then stood on the stairway trying to mix like running up and down to slow <laughs> down and speed one up like to get them to beat match that you know like that was that and, and i used to bring my friends around and go watch this and they'd be like what are you doing what are you doing so yeah anyway fascinated by a turntable and it, it, it was it, i i think i was about 12 or something when i literally had about that many records and it was like i used to like move the order of them around but I used to stay in my room a lot and draw. I was fascinated like with art and like graffiti art and drawing. So having music on with me, get up last to listen to the radio, like, you know, um it was like um what's he called again? Robbie Vincent on oh. um yeah. And then there was Ian Hughes was was he called Ian Hughes was on Metro Radio on, and and he used to do a soul show. And ironically he's now a good friend, but he's like a fan of our band. And like so when I met him it was like a fan off I'm like no no I'm a fan of you no no I'm a fan of you so, <laughs> anyway I'm slightly digressing but yeah it was it was that ha- having that many records and then suddenly I wanted more I wanted like a big collection and I don't know where that came from I think it's it must be in people not necessarily to collect records I think it's just a collecting nature do you know what I mean like hoarding basically let's face it that's what it is it's interesting I've found it interesting over over these nine months that I find it interesting that I still want to collect music, even though I've got nowhere to play it, if that makes sense. Like, for me, it's like a house music thing. But even yeah. though there's new records coming out, and I still, so many times, I'm just in here, sat in my studio, and I turn it up, and I'm like, fuck, I wish I was going out this weekend to play that in digital, or yeah. do you know what I mean? Or whatever, like, I wish I could go and fucking hear that sub, like, reverberating and see people, like you said before, losing it to losing it. Losing shit, yeah. And, yeah, and I've been really surprised at how many people 
even I've had a couple of releases over the summer and stuff and how many people have messaged me from around the world going, oh, I just got your new track on Repart, I fucking love it. And it seems mad to me because to me that music feels like it's just made for a nightclub. So it's almost like, what's the point of it if it's not in a nightclub? And <clears throat> the only reason I might listen to it, I think this is what I thought I thought before the pandemic, the only reason I listen to stuff like not in a nightclub is because I heard it in a nightclub and I want to remember how good it sounded and like the emotion. So I've I've still been really surprised how much people want to collect music over this time when, when potentially they haven't got the chance to DJ it out. But like you said, I think it's maybe something that's just innate in us that wants to collect new music and have it and sort it. Do you know what I mean? Because even though, you know, I know you, I can see all your vinyl and I'm sure you've got a way of sorting it. But even in a no, digital... No, no, it's, it's, it's horrendous. <laughs> but even in a digital world... I still feel that need to like get it and put it into the playlist of which I think I'll use it in. Do you know what I mean? In sets in times to come and like, yeah, it's mad. I think I, I think it's that um, you know, like on the radio, like I do every week. I sort of I do like there's a section where I do like a half an hour mix at the very beginning. And it's like generally speaking, it's more on the disco, uh, modern, n- new disco. It's called and like a, a little bit of techno or a little bit of house, <clears throat> mainly on the disco thing. And uh, I, I really look forward to that, and I sort of like that's that's what's sort of stirring me at the moment. So it's great. And then you've got the weird section in the middle, and John plays his box. You know, it can be anything. You know what I mean? It's all over the place. It's such an eclectic show. So I like that because that's as you say, it gives you an outlet for like okay. sharing music, or rather than just collecting music and then not playing it to anybody. Like, what's the point? You know what I mean? Yeah. So. I can see your point. But I also go through fads, like not music fads, like format fads, which is really okay. strange. Like I, 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 over the last seven years, all I've done is re, re-buy everything on 7-inch, which is insane. <laughs> I've already got a lot a lot of 7-inches. They're all on the back wall there. Um, but And there's a load on the floor down here. I'll just quickly show you this look. Amazing. <laughs> loads of 7s. So I've got... I've got this thing about sevens and I've had it for a long time, but I've just been, Oh, I'd love to get that on seven. So I've got like pretty much like nailed all the sevens I want, but it's, and it's still releasing new sevens, but then I, I, I've kind of gone, fell back in love with 12 inches. You know what I mean? So maybe he's next year. I'll be, fall in love with albums again do you know what I mean <laughs> or combinations so, so, then, so obviously I'll take you forward from you running up and downstairs to mix when <laughs> when's when's the first time that you remember seeing someone actually DJing on like not different levels of a house two decks next to each other with a mixer can you can you remember the first time you physically yeah. saw someone doing that not not in real world it was on telly right on the TV and I was like wow I think there was something on Esther Ranson on That's Life or something <laughs> amazing, like that yeah. That, that they were there was someone doing robotics and that's the first thing I learned. I was like, wow, and um, and I think um, street dance the song, I was like massively into that. But um, a few years after was paid in full, Eric being Rakim when they were on top of the pops, I was just blown away. I was like, ah, oh, what they're doing with the turntables like and Mars. You remember Mars? Yeah. Um, pump up the volume. There was just the two of them like on the turntables. You know, they were miming, but it for me, I was like, they're doing something that I need that I need to get into. Like, and you know, it, it, it it's so blurry because it was so long ago. But I can't really remember the definitive moment to answer your question. But I remember the first time I ever beat matched. Obviously, it wasn't on my dad's thing. Um, I had a cassette and I was playing the cassette and I pushed the record round. And I remember being over the moon that I get it in for about six seconds in time. I was like, oh wow, that's that's it, that's it. 
And then I was hooked. I was just like, I've got to get some decks. And I remember Technics, you couldn't just go out and buy a pair of Technics because they were like stupid money and still yeah. are. Yeah. You know, and um, so I'd photocopied the logo so big that it was on each sheet, like each letter. So it was right across the room like that. And I'd coloured them all in. And it was like, this is how shit it was. And I was just like, God, one day I'll have some of them. And this went on for years and years and years. And everybody kept saying, why haven't you got some decks? Because I can't afford them. And I think it wasn't until I got my first record deal, uh, I was like 19, that I actually got what? one deck. I got one deck. And I was signing to Big Life Records. And it was like, that. that's how long it took. And then I had to start learning because I'd been using these crap turntables. And actually, the first time I ever used a turntable, a Technics proper turntable, was in Chambers Nightclub. And I remember trying to mix and pulling the... Uh, pitch fade like to speed it up the wrong way i was pulling it towards me to slow it down and pushing it away to speed it up mixes were all over the place i was proper shaking i was filling in for somebody else and i was like god that must have been horrific but it probably wasn't that bad it was just in my head actually it was probably terrible and uh and so yeah that was the first time i'd ever touched a technics it was like out there doing it how horrific is that um so how but, did you get so how did you get to take you back to that record deal and i know and we're, we're, we're jumping around but because so you were talking about the cut and paste thing the sampling thing going to college getting you know feeling like confident how did you produce music at this stage to get this record deal what were you using i was lucky um i kind of um i was wanting to make music and i was already dabbling bits in studios but not hands-on i was kind of taking records down and getting other people to sort of sample them for me and loop them up yeah. and I was having to explain. It was very frustrating. And then I met a guy called Tubes. Um, he was making music for years. He's 10 years on me. And he was like looking for a front man for the band. I didn't want to be a front man. I could rap, but I didn't want to do that. But I ended up being a front man for the band. That was just the way to get into it. And uh, But he was fascinated, this guy, by, by my charisma and I guess my energy. You know, he was like, oh, he's perfect for the band. He had a vision. Um, so we got the deal because of everything that like of his vision and I learned lots from him. He was kind of like a mentor in some ways. And um, but I also learned like like sort of how to take that and, and do something with it myself. So at this point, I started, I think I got a Commodore um, 64. Sorry. Yeah, and started with a sampler in the back. This is really late on as well. And I, I was using Octomed. And I started learning how to punch the holes in and sequence of stuff. And once I got me first four track, I was aware I was doing all these ideas. And um, so the record label, we got this record deal with Big Life through this guy called Tubes. And we were in a band called Ultra Groove. Uh, and we managed to remix Digital Underground. And we did our own track. But Boss Gag's sample on it, he didn't give us the clearance. And the record label had pressed up thousands of them. So we were dropped by big life and i think he was fired or something crazy went on and so yeah it, it was very short-lived but then you know we, we also had the ashbrook all-stars out at the same time which went in like number 16 in the dance charts which was insane so um but tubes had really put that song together and i just went out in front of it like with the ashbrook all-stars which was also another band in, from ashbrook and sunland called um ask who then went on to be opus three wow. who yeah, so it was like it, it was a crazy time. This is all in like, what year was this? Nineteen ninety. Yeah. So then, so then DJ wise, you said you got that first turntable around that 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 um, that deal time. When did you get like what? How long was it till you got that? Till you got a setup and you could really start to kind of develop. I bought a I bought a mixer, a Gemini mixer. It was quite yeah. a good one that Cash Money used to use. I bought that second hand off my friend. 
I remember I met him at C and A on Saturday. <laughs> Bought off him for twenty quid. Mate, we're dropping, we're dropping Woolworths, we're dropping C and A. I'm loving all, it. All, all the shops that have gone, yeah. Um, and yeah, and and I think then we got the, another record deal, and then I got another turntable. Um, and then I, I wanted my own pair at home, you know, so I could work. So Tubes bought some more, and then we sort of split them. Do you know what I mean? But right. they, my original turntables got stolen. I was devastated after a party, um, so I ended up having to buy the black ones because the original ones were silver and I absolutely twelve hundreds. Yeah, the twelve hundreds. Yeah. That was the dream. The ones I wanted. I was devastated. Yeah. Like because they're the more because they're like they're seen as the more like hip hop ones, aren't they? The silver ones oh. on their side is like the yeah. hip hop setup, yeah. and the twelve wow, tens like on you know like sort of that way is a more house With setup. House. Is, yeah, I don't know why that. It must just been who <laughs> used the twelve hundreds and who used the twelve tens, but because they're they're basically the same, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they are exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they keep modifying them and, you know, putting gold switches on here, and but it's, yeah, it's the same we were, thing. We were talking about it on the on, on the recent podcast. I think it was with the, the previous one was Dr. Feelgood, who's like a Cafe Mambo resident. And, um, yeah, he had in the background, I've got mine over there. And we were just saying, like, it's insane how they haven't changed. Like, I'm sure techniques will tell you that the Mark fives or whatever are better but they're just they're the same they're just the same thing yeah. but it's amazing how they don't break as well really like touch yeah wood. you can drop them from the, the a high height and they'd survive i'm not gonna um, try <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's uh it's just a beautiful thing i mean uh i know loads of people who've got them who are not djs you know they just want one because yeah. they are they're like they're like an Aston Martin of decks, you know. Well, I've I mean? been, I mean, I'm not as, I've got a small vinyl collection. I used to own a record shop, but like DJ wise, I haven't, I, I technically hadn't DJed on vinyl for, for a really long time because it's just, it's impractical for me to carry stuff. It's, you know, there's new stuff coming out, all, you know, for many reasons, which you can agree with or disagree with, but I left vinyl behind a long time ago. What's really brought back my 1210s to life and I, what I'm in love with as well is, my setup, so I have my setup and I have vinyl, which I occasionally listen to through my needles. But what's really I've loved is the like the DVS stuff, so that I can have my laptop on, but I can control what's on my you know my digital music through my turntables, and that's really reignited yeah. my love of 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 touching and feeling. Um, and I've just got the phase. Have you seen the phase thing where you just put this little yeah, USB? Needle, yeah. So you don't even need like a, a vinyl, you know, a bit of vinyl. The needle's not even on the record. It's just. Well, oh, it's, it's interesting because uh, th- th- this kind of goes back to what I said about like sort of uh, fads of like, you know, different formats. And that in my mind was another format because I got tracked out. I was teaching um, with Mark Lowry. Uh, yeah, on a course yeah. Where, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was teaching kids out to DJ and produce. <clears throat> and one of the things I was teaching part of it was tractor because all the kids were really interested in it. And uh, I had the tractor vinyls. So I, I ended up thinking, well, I've got it. And, and I was doing gigs with Terrell at the time where I was. DJ and he was singing and I used to have to take CDs along and ask them to set up CDJs just so we can play our backing tracks because what we used to do was not just play our backing tracks we used to play like lots of records and then intersperse our stuff so John would be freestyling over one instrumental or then we let's fall into one of ours and then I, I just hated CDJs I never, I've never liked them um, in fact my car's just like the carpet is just CDs on the floor it's just scratched a bit but um, I ended up like sort of like using tractor and buying it and installing it and but i found the setup of it such a pain in the ass you know what i mean it was like you know if one thing wasn't quite touching right it, it would just die oh, in the middle is. of the set it was it yeah. i had loads of problems with it and i hated it and but then i had so many problems with feedback because this was the era when electronic music was coming bigger and bigger 
digital platforms were coming bigger and bigger and no one was sound checking turntables anymore so when i turned yeah. up and they'd hired the t- the t- turntables especially for me it was just it was like oh this yeah. is this is a nightmare you know i remember one gig where john had to hold each <laughs> turntable while i was mixing so it was just a joke it was it was literally a joke you know and um I, there was a couple of times at festivals there was one great one where i i discovered the plastic pine cups if you turn it upside down and squash it so it's just like a and you put like four of them under each feet it was the perfect balance or orange cartons i've done that before in a club i think, like, full I, of I, orange. think I found it really weird the first time i remember playing in digital like in i was playing upstairs and they had this huge coffin with like four 1210s at the front and then four CDJs. And, and I was playing I was playing off a mix, which just sounds hilarious. I was playing off a mix of vinyl and CDs because it was that period when things were changing. Yeah. But it was the first time I've ever played there. And I think it was probably the first time I'd ever played in like a big, proper club. I'd played out on 1210s before in bars, but they tend to just be sat on the, on the DJ booth. But I have this really vivid memory of the turntables being on like squash balls. I think they were on four squash balls. And so they moved, like they moved up and down as you were cueing the record. And I found it like it bent my fucking brain. Do you know what I mean? Because we just, I'd gone in, hadn't, you know, I'm not sound checking. I'm not a big deal. So I put the first record on. I was like, why is the fucking deck moving? This is fucking metal. Well, it it was kind of all right if you're an electronic dance DJ because, you know, there's not that much action going on. But when you're a scratch DJ, you're fucked. Literally. (laughs) You know, it's like, what is this? I mean, I remember one club, I think it was in Manchester, I vaguely remember, I was Hull, actually, at a party. And it was a good idea, but it just didn't work, like, as a scratch DJ. They had them hanging from chains, like, from the ceiling. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Because the floor was so bouncy. Um, seen that. It was, like, it, was like, it was like a love swing, you know? <laughs> and the turntable all over. It was crazy. So, yeah, so, so, so. Set up, so, then, so just to keep you in the DJ sort of mindset for a second, you've got your own setup at home. What's the kind of, like practicing that you did how did you get so technically proficient like it it all built up from this trying to scratch on your dad's turntable like did it take a long time did it come naturally like how did you get to that like level of technical proficiency of which i remember of you um i think just scratching and and being obsessed like just practicing and um but not being aware of it i was talking about this the other day like i'd wake up and but it wasn't about the scratching it was about being creative as in i wanted to make music from it that was the thing. That was the, the thing that got me out of bed. Was like I've got an idea. I could put that with that, and it wasn't about mixing two tracks together like for a mixtape. I wasn't really interested in that. In fact, the only mixtapes I did was when my friends really came round with a blank tape and, and sat with us and went, "Do us one now." You know that that was the only way to get one. Um, and I bet they were horrendous them tapes. You know what I mean? But it, you know, it was like yeah. So. Um, so the story is like I would get up out of bed in me duds and my dad would bring us a cup of tea and I'd be mixing and chopping bits and writing loads of stuff down everywhere. Like, and then it, it was pitch black. It was like nighttime and I'd been there all day and there was a cold cup of coffee still there and a sandwich still at the door freezing cold. And I'd be like, wow, like that, that I've just lost like so many days in my life, like because I was just obsessed. So I, I guess that's, how it happened, you know what I mean? That's where, where did it you, Where did you, like, as you've gone through this journey, like, where, how did you see yourself? Did you see yourself as a DJ? Did you see yourself as a performer? Did you see yourself as a producer? Did you see yourself as a create, creative? Like, how have you, you've obviously morphed through a lot of different things over over your life. How were you thinking about certain things as you were moving through, do you remember? I never, ever wanted to be a DJ. Never. Right. 
even when I was a DJ, I didn't want to be a DJ. Um, that's not to say I didn't enjoy it. I did, I, absolutely. And also, it was great to be able to make money from it. You know what I mean? Like, where you, I didn't have to go to a nine or five. I had enough work. I hated residencies, though. Absolutely. Still to this day, I can't stand residencies. I love the exotic thing of getting in a taxi at four in the morning and then arriving in, in another country by about 12 midday. And it was just like, why? here's the stage here's the club the unknown do you know what i mean it might be crap but it was that was my life for like 15 20 years like pretty much every weekend you know and and that that was amazing but it took a long time to get to that point you know what i mean i had all the residencies where i dragged my record box without wheels right um down westgate hill to play at poonanar stone love all the usual haunts in newcastle like that have, most of them have gone now and I, I did my time. That was my apprentice, really, you know. Yeah. And everyone saw me. Oh, there's smooth again. Do you know what I mean? But I, I think the thing was, I played eclectic. I, I was known as a hip hop scratch DJ, and um, but I was, I was more than that. You know what I mean? It, it never annoyed me. You know, it's nice to have some identity. But be, I think the thing I was famous for was the back room rock shots. That was it, really. Where yeah. I used to play <clears> the <throat> funk, and mainly known for the, that excellent time in hip hop. But, but. It, I was always into like Detroit house music, like from the early days, and you know, like I said, the boogie, the electro, loads of jazz I've got, which I never got a chance to play. The chilled out stuff, the more soulful stuff. That was sometimes my favorite part in the bar, was when there was hardly anyone in, and you were just starting to say, "Oh, this is it. This is the best bit." Do you know what I mean? And then someone would get up and dance, and go, "No," because if you dance, right, then I'm gonna have to play more upbeat music. I want to play this. This. So it's interesting. It's interesting because you talk about the the residencies thing and like I've been lucky enough to you know be a resident digital for a very long time and I've also been lucky enough to do a bit of touring and it's interesting because totally agree with you like the idea of getting on a plane getting on a train turning up somewhere the adventure meeting people seeing places is amazing and I love it but interestingly what I used to my favorite bits of my residency like would be and I used to play all night on a Saturday from like 10 till half three quarter to four my favorite bits would always be like the first hour and a half and almost like the last hour. So it's like the first hour yeah. and a half when people are just coming in and you don't feel that dance floor pressure. You're just like, you're kind of working through some new records, here, listening to some old stuff, basically play, almost playing for yourself, really. And then like you hit that middle bit where you've almost got to fulfill certain things and tick certain boxes and like play the records people want to hear at that moment in time. And then the promoter might be there or the owner might be there. But then I, I love that last hour where everyone's like the owner's fucked off the promoter's paid you and he's gone no like, pressure yeah yeah and you've lost like you've lost the, the sort of like the sh- you know whatever the weekend party kids who've just come out and they've left and you're just left with the kind of like with the, the hardcore hard on the dance floor uh, and you uh, just fucking let you fucking you let loose man you let it go because you just like start dropping in this weird old thing and then you play something you've just done because you want to test it out and like you, your booth's got your booth's a bit emptier and it's like they're the, the times I, I, I really loved i think for me the art of djing and this is so like uh never really spoke about is is the art of packing um because back then you like you know you could take two boxes if you want but if you're flying it was always a risk you take them with you or whatever but even if it was a residency you only carry so many so it was that thing of right i, I need them bombs i need to know i've got that if i fall I need the new stuff in that it keeps me alive and I'm going to keep wholesome back. You might even play it twice, you know what I mean? And then, I, and, and then I've got this bit in the middle that like is kind of like, who knows where this is going to go. But, but it's like, once you've done that, even if you've had a few beers, you know fine well that you're safe because that is telling you what to play. You don't even have to think. 
there's loads of times I used to DJ where my hands used to pull the records out on, on like autopilot. I'd be like watching my hands and watching the mix. And it was like, whoa, it was, it was an amazing feeling that like it's so natural, you know. But I, I guess that's that that isn't really practicing. That's just doing it. People have always asked me what makes a good DJ. It's like you can practice till you're blue in the face in the house. You ain't never going to learn how to be a good DJ. You've got to literally just get out there and have nervous hands with that needle. You know what I mean? Crack on or the, the, the more that you do. Because then you'll understand music. And to be honest, to answer your question of ages ago, uh, I, I, I wanted to be a producer. Like, not as in, like, a Dr. Dre producer. I wanted to make music, like, yeah. from sampling. That was ultimately all I ever wanted to do. Uh, and I'm lucky that, uh, like, that I fell into so many different holes, you know. But but it's basically that thing of, like, you've got to be a producer if you want to be a DJ if you and if you want to be a DJ you've got to be a producer blah 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 they, they both feed off each other and you know I, I still know loads of people who dabble in production and it, and it helps them but uh, it, it's I, I hardly know anybody who's just a DJ it's such a rare thing who makes a really good living from it anyway yeah it's especially now I mean like in my in well, I know you're very aware of this world but in my world of like of, of, of house music you you could be I mean, I always use Yousef as an example. Like, you could, there was a time 20 years ago when you could break through on the quality of your DJ. And do you know what I mean? And whether that was yeah, based on, yeah, on yeah. the residency of a nightclub, you know, like, you know, obviously Yousef came through Cream in Liverpool and he didn't, he didn't make, you know, at that time he didn't release records and he became an international touring DJ. Now, I would go as far as to say it is almost impossible to become an international touring dj without releasing records i mean i'm sure there's some example of a fucking gok one or something although he's just fucking released a record manufactured so yeah, yeah. yeah i'm sure there's i'm sure there's like a reality star who can earn money as a dj you know but like if you're trying to be taken seriously and as a credible dj that i don't think there's a way to break onto the international touring circuit now without releasing records Nah, nah, absolutely. I've, I mean, I've always said that anyway. Uh, I mean, who knows what the future is, but I think the world that we're from, it's like, it's still alive very much so. I mean, everything's going around in circles, which is great. But I mean, like the disco edits, it's like, you know, how long has that been around? Absolutely years, but it's it seems to be right at its peak now. I mean, all all the charts is just that, you know what I mean? It's just boom, boom, right up there. I And some of them are a bit like, oh God, I've heard this before, done again. But sometimes <laughs> some of them are really good. Like every genre of music, like there's there's going to be lots of shit. You know what I mean? There is. Um, but I do love as a DJ. I do love that because, for example, you know, I mean, we all know the obvious ones like you know, Robin has Show Me Love or whatever. And there's be there'll be literally a thousand edits of that now. And yeah, you can cut out sixty percent, seventy percent of them of being of being dog shit. But what I do love as a DJ now is. I can almost find the perfect edit for each set, whether that set be a peak time thing, a warm up thing, a sunset thing, a, a, an after hours thing, a, a lounge bar. Like I can go and find the edit of almost any record in the world that I want. If I spend enough time on SoundCloud or wherever, I yeah. can find the perfect edit for the perfect set. <laughs> that I mean, it's sort of uh, being in here, surrounded by all these records. I like it's unbelievable when i do the radio show it's such a joy to be able to go ah oh! i mean then this finding it isn't is a problem <laughs> but I, or not even have an idea i can just like put a record on and it's halfway through the show and just start wandering through this oh that one i re-. and then it's great to be able to have them all there i mean obviously you do that with your computer but you've got to think you've got to think what am i going to play next all that <laughs> whereas going through the racks you know what i mean 
I think it's why it's, I, I think with my digital collection, I spend so much time playlisting with it because I don't have the ability, like I used to do, like you have, to just look at a wall of music. Do you know what I mean? And like, and take inspiration. And there's no way that you can just look at a, a full iTunes library and browse through it. It's horrible. It's, you know what I mean? Like my, no. whatever I've got ADHD or whatever, or I can't cope with it. So I have to playlist music so ag- aggressively. Like, you know, every like week I'll go through the music that I've got and put it into loads of different playlists so that when I, come to do a set or make a mix or whatever i can go through those playlists and browse that um i mean i, I mean the, i mean you know there is the other side as well you know it's not just about always vinyl like there's the youtube rabbit hole do you know what i mean that's amazing you know someone posts something on facebook and the next thing you're an hour and a half in you're like whoa what just happened there <laughs> well i've just i've just started How did I, I get here? i'll send you it i'll send you it over i've just started a, a new idea which with my mate danny who's a comedian and we've called it like show me the sample and the idea is just that is to visualize that rabbit warren that you go on and it's like this is the record that you know do you know what i mean i don't when i say you i mean like more general public yeah, people yeah. but you did you know that this comes from this 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 and this did you know that this 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 and this is linked to that 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 and that and did you know that the guy who produced this also so produced that and toured with and like it's it's amazing well it all comes down to one person doesn't it really <laughs> who's that doctor who <laughs> <laughs> right so let's so let's go from the i mean you've obviously always been making music you you, you were djing you were touring when did the smooth and terrell project come alive for anyone that doesn't know and i'm sure you've told this story before but this is a different you know audience potentially than you know because of the podcast that this is tell the story of how that came about and and why it was created and what's gone on to happen with it at the time i was signed with acid jazz this is about 2007 i've been with them already seven years um and released like a few albums and lots of singles and um i'd before I got signed, I said jazz. I had a little music, and uh, I was like not really being that productive. And I did a, 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 a sculpture course. I did a degree in sculpture. So I, I, I met this girl called Nicola, who I was friends with, and my missus met her through some other mutual friends. So we used to meet up with us sometimes for coffee, go around the house and whatnot. And then one day, Nicola said to me, "Oh, my fella's a singer. He wants to record some stuff. You." have you got the facilities like to do that? I says, yeah, yeah, I can do that. He says, oh, he, he, he's in a, like, duo. Um, how much would it cost? Blah, blah, blah. He came around my house, and I, when they turned up, um, I was just, like, looking at them going, oh, who are these? And uh, <laughs> he, he had, like, a, a lump of dope and, like, you know, about 20 cans of lager. I was just like, oh, God, who are these? And anyway, we, we got their stuff down within, like, a week in all, uh, and we recorded, like, a full album, and they were called the Stevies. And I love John's voice, but what I liked more about John was how he didn't—he didn't sort of mess around. He didn't, oh, I'm not sure about that. He just—he just did it, because he had this certain like naive about writing. Because he—he'd been working with Alan in the garage, like playing um, every Friday night and getting pissed and just making music. And his theory was, if I don't remember it, then it wasn't good enough. You know, they weren't even recording any of it. There's like ways to put. That's how he learned his craft, really. Of like. He'd been singing from an early age anyway, but it was that thing of like he he just could just write as the music was coming at him. He could just write it down or even just make it up. So I loved that, like that he was just really quick. Uh, and I was like, oh, and obviously he had an amazing voice. And I went like, oh, so we finished our thing. And I went, do you want to sing on one of mine? And I'd wrote this thing called I Can't Give You Up. And I'd only wrote like this rough chorus. And it was just this loop. And this Mike Porter was already playing on it because Mike was already on my music from years before 
So basically, John sang this song and made up the second verse off the spot off, after singing the chorus. And it was like, wow. So we got a, two or three songs together. And before we knew it, um, all the leftovers that I had hanging around and we wrote little bits, it was pretty much an album was done. And then I just sent it off and, and it got signed within an hour. It was just like <sighs> insane. It was crazy. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of how we met. But weirdly, Mike Porter, who's our keyboard player, he was, uh, as I said, he was like living, um, Alan lived next door to Mike. So where they were rehearsing, him and John, um, Mike could hear this voice th- through the garage wall every weekend, every Friday. You know, like, who is that? He never, ever saw him. So when they finally met and he heard him sing, he goes, oh, my God, it's you. So it was like, you know, I, I think we would have met anywhere at some point. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I think our worlds were meant to meet, you know. So it, it was a great thing because obviously, like, John was in the middle of trying to get a record deal in France and all that went to shit. But um, I, I was actually helping him to get the deal and sort of guiding him how, how to do a MySpace and all that kind of crap. That's how long ago it was. And um, and then, you know, he slowly drifted towards doing what I was doing. And uh, he did some more stuff. You know, he's not only ever just worked with me. He's worked with some other French producers. He's worked with Ashley Beadle, um, you know, loads and loads of people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so he loves, like, you know, and and he still does. He still works with loads of different people. So it's great, you know, like, just to rather than just do one thing. But he's totally loyal now to what's moving to is because he knows where he's bred his butter, basically. And, you know, we're a family now, and it's it's gone on, like, 10 years now. You know what I mean? I've seen him lose his hair. You know what I mean? It's been that long. <laughs> well, I want to I touch on something um, that you've mentioned before, because, again, I was aware that you were doing this um, with Mark for Generator, um, as, as sort of you were talking about. You were, you were teaching DJing, and I guess was Mark teaching the production side of things at the time? Yeah, um, Mark sort of got me involved more for the DJing, and um, that's correct. He was doing the production, but he, he, he was already aware of that I was making music. So I remember that, um, he used to DJ Poo and Anar, but I think he was just there having a drink one night, and I was actually on the decks, and he come torpedoed over the decks, like right under my face. What the fuck is this? And I was like, oh, it's one of mine. Like, I've actually just, I'm still mixing it. I was playing it off mini disc. And, uh, and he oh, went, God. oh, my God, I need I need to get a copy of this. And that was actually on my first debut album, um, Dead Men's Church. The song was called The Man With Two Watches. It's an instrumental song with loads of string samples. And he was just like, oh, my God. And from that day, really, Mark just fell in love because we had the same taste. You know what I mean? Fell in love with music, not me. But I, I think he liked my sort of approach because he was quite um, nerdy. And um, he, he's a lush kid, Mark. Like, But like, he gets rubbed up the wrong way really easy by people. But... Um, you know, to the point now he doesn't even make music. You know, it's really sad. Um, but he was a great teacher. But sometimes he would go too far into it. And I was kind of like brought in really to sort of like just to keep things simple because I'm not nerdy. You know what I mean? I, like far from it. I hate technology, but I'm great at getting things done in a kind of slapdash kind of way. Do you know what I mean? So it was a great uh, team, I suppose, that he was like, you know, the brains and I was the sort of the hands of it well, what, I, what I wanted to ask you because I don't think it's anything that I've ever asked anyone on this um, on this series before was what was your approach to teaching someone to DJ do you know what I mean because there might be someone listening to this who's never DJed but thinks they'd love to do it um, so A a little bit of advice but B what was your thought process when someone said to you you know whether it be Mark or whoever and said I want you to teach these kids you know what you do and how you do it what was your approach to it what was your mindset towards teaching people to DJ 
Um, it was tough because sometimes we would go into a, like it would be like a social club or something, and the you know they were all like uh, totally disadvantaged kids, you know, like no mums and dads, like broken homes, like really sort of low life, you know, it was bad, and and you know their attention was so difficult. So I, I, in in those situations, I used to have to just show off very very shortly, just do some mad scratching and like you know human beatboxing rap, and they would just go, and they'd be like. Because at first they'd just be laughing at you, you know what I mean? Oh, look at that doff git, man. Look at him, man. Proper spiky knob. And uh, and, I, and I'd be like, oh, this is an awful... But then you just flip them. And then I'd say, like, right, who wants to have a try at this scratch? And they'd all go. And I'd say, I'll give someone a punt. And then everyone run to the front and it was like... So there's this weird way of... It wasn't planned. It was just, like, natural that, that you could just involve them. And then they just liked you. They warmed you. And then they'd want to use the decks. You know what I mean? It was... Getting past that wall of like them letting their guard down—that's what it was. That—that's what they fear most, you know. Like these disadvantaged kids, they've got like, you know, the worst thing that can happen to them is their friends laughing at them. That's the worst thing, you know what I mean? It's like Jesus. But the other side of it was, uh, even if there's someone that, like, luckily we ended up doing the course where kids signed up, so they wanted to be learned. So it was kind of a different yeah. sort of challenge. But even still, you'd have the drop off, like where they've got like just going cross eye going oh, I don't know what he's talking about so it was trying to engage them where they could because everyone's at different levels and I used to always try and say look it doesn't matter what level you're off I, I'm going to have a one to one with you at some point and I'm going to assess you and, and get you up to like the speed like and see what the problems are or see what your advantages already are you know what I mean so it was just that that was it really I think you raised such an interesting point because I'm definitely old enough now to not give a fuck what my friends think about me. And and you look back to school and you, and you realise that those kids that you thought were maybe weird who didn't give a fuck what anyone thought, they're now the interesting fucking people who you want to like hang out with and speak to. And it's like the sooner that you, you know, any advice I could give to anyone listening out there who's worried about what the mates might think if they post a video of them DJing or if they start to produce music or whatever is fucking fuck that like the sooner you realize that it doesn't matter what your mates think and you st- someone sent me a track the other day and i listened to it i was like this is wicked and they were like oh i'm worried that like some of my pals won't like it i was like fuck your pals mate <laughs> like <laughs> make fucking music that you love and put it out there well it's kind of well, well there's two things to that one is it's like that nerds are cool in this day and age, nerds are cool. Skateboarders are su- super cool now, not just because they can skateboard. They're generally very interesting people. People in heavy metal are the most intelligent people you'll ever meet. Do you know what I mean? It's like, but you look at them, they're like with, with the grungy hair and they're just like down at the back of the room or goths or anything like that. They are, they are super. Like, I learned this from like Ozzy, who plays now a band. He's super intelligent. His brother's such a nerd. He's an amazing guitarist. They're proper geeks and they openly admit it. You know what I mean? But, there's something about, I think it's the fear of the unknown. You don't like gigs because you've never spoke the one. But then when you do, you go like, God, they're super intelligent. That's why people are inferior of them. The other thing is, uh, going back to the thing of like, you know, you saying what you're scared of. I remember doing a course with Mark and there was a kid on the course, lovely kid. And he was sitting like three seats back every session. And I'd be like trying to engage everybody and show them like structuring and stuff like that. And, um, this like one lad piped up and went oh i've got some stuff but i haven't finished anything and i went right uh well i've just showed you some stuff there so can you take that away in mind and bring your stuff in next week and we'll have a listen to it he went yeah 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 so he brought it in and me and mark listened to it and we looked at each other and went that's fucking amazing you structure shit but that's fucking amazing he says oh, i need something else I says no mate there's enough in there all 
all you got to do is deconstruct it and then you've got enough stuff you bring the stuff in and out and he was like all right right and it just sees eyes just like this a light bulb went in his head he was like right he went away and he came back with three finished songs and then the next session came back with six finished songs and he just kept coming and that's solely it was like massive now do you know what i mean yeah and uh he's just remixed one of ours but he always thanks me. I mean, I didn't do anything. I just I just pointed him in the direction. That's all I did. He already had it. But it's just lovely to see that, like, sometimes just it's not even mentoring, just, just going like that over there. That That's head that way. Do you know what I mean? It, it was great. Like, it was so satisfying. Yeah, he did a, he did a gig for me, like, pre, pre-lockdown at the start of this. Either the start of this year or the start at the end, back end of last year. He's such a great lad. I've been bugging him for ages to get on here, but he, uh, he keeps swerving his leg. But I'll keep, I'll keep, I'll keep prodding him. I'll keep prodding I'll him. I'll get him on. Um, so what's, what's the, you know, before we start to wrap it up, like, I mean, obviously I could talk to you about a hundred different things for hours and hours and hours, but to, to, before we start to wrap it up, like, what are your what what are your plans going forward into next year? Are you are you looking are you looking to tour the album that you released in June? Are you are you currently writing a new album? Or have you got other projects going on? Like, what sort of what's in your head at the moment? Like, what's what what you're looking f- into next year with? Well, obviously, the burning thing is like you know we did move everything till next year, um, the tour, but that's realistically not going to happen. I mean the government do this stupid thing where they go hey here's a vaccine way and it's not even fucking ready you know i mean no it's not going to be rolled out to everybody it's not it's going to be really painstakingly slow like rolled out and like it it's going to be another year another year of this i'm telling you now and it's just like that's how it is but i'm still booking stuff in i'm still being positive but then if you don't get them you don't get them but you have to get them in otherwise everyone else is fighting over the dates so we've got that that's that we are writing new music we've already wrote two new songs um that are virtually done and that's going to go for the next album that that'll probably take us a good 12 month at least to write um so that'll that'll probably come out 2022 um i'm actually booking stuff for 2022 and 2023 already which is insane um and we like like I, i do a lot of remixes so i've got all of that going on as well um i've got um a couple of labels I run, one of them being Whack Records. So I've done some. Um, I did a mix for Six Music, and um, and I, the idea was to sort of get stems and remix these tracks, and then mix all of these tracks into a mix. So it was like remixed remix. Um, so it was like you couldn't get any of the stuff it was all exclusive. And I got such a good reaction. I thought, you know what, I should actually f- chop and tidy these up and make them into an actual release so i've done those in lockdown and they're all going to come out as well like there's loads of them um but they're not coming out on whack records actually i'm doing them on um friday's funky 45s and uh recense a label in germany as well so yeah there's there's lots more stuff like like i said i'm still being really productive we're still continuing to do the radio show the northern call experience um that goes out or now we're in uh, the first radio in brooklyn we're in method in newcastle uh, one BTN in Brighton and Totally Wired in London and soon Soho Radio as well. So yeah, that that's keeping our our uh, beans frying. <laughs> Amazing man, that sounds wicked. Right, I'm going to hit you with some before we we've got like sort of a three phased podcast wrap up. So I'm going to hit you with some quick fire questions. Doesn't have to be an answer, but we're just we're just trying to get some just get some some answers. So the first one is. Favorite city you've been to? Might have been for a gig. It might have been just because you went traveling. But favorite city you've been to? Just something that you know you can tell people about. Oh, that's really difficult because I've been so far. 
I, 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 I'd have to just give you the answer of Germany as a city because <laughs> it's a great place. There's too many great places in Germany. I love Germany. Cool. Yeah. Um, I want to hit you with first club, first nightclub you can remember going to. You may have snuck in, but first nightclub you can remember going to. Oh, God, that, that's hot. Oh, I mean, I went under 18's nightclub. I uh, found a video the other day. Uh, online, I couldn't believe it was like someone had videoed it, and it was a uh, tops and teens. It was called in Sunderland. It then it, that then it became a gym. I think it's gone now. Like, but it was in the car park where the Blue Monkey used to be, opposite there. So yeah, that was the first uh, experience of nightclub, and when I was about fourteen. Is there a track that you would say has influenced you the most throughout your career? Oh my God! Yeah, I, I, if I have to put it down, uh, I'll probably say Mars pump up the volume just because of the cut and paste the dance element uh the scratching everything the snippets of sound bites and all that sort of stuff yeah i love that favorite i'm gonna say club but if you want to if you want to move it to a festival or whatever like i'm gonna i'm gonna keep you to dj here so it's not it's not a live band thing as a dj favorite sort of venue whether it be a club or a festival that you've played that you'd love to you know you'd love to relive that moment oh um i I mean we talk about this all the time it's probably got to be we got um, an offer to play the Big Chill Festival, which is long gone now. And uh, when we turned up, we only had one hour to play. I think it was one hour. And it was uh, like a DJ thing that was kind of like a van, like an open van, and um, like an ice cream van, like a big ice cream van. But there was no stage. It was just a massive empty field. So we started and there was nobody there. And then by about like 15, 20 minutes in, it was just like a sea of people. It was unbelievable. And I remembered like, looking at john going we've arrived this is it this is this is this is where we take off and it was we just got so many bookings off the back of that like loads of people like so probably the big chill yeah nice one a dj that you would dead or alive doesn't have to be like tomorrow it can be at any point you know but like someone you'd love to warm up for so you might get a book an email through or whatever and it just says you know what i mean you're on and you're warming up for this this dj and you just think oh that's just perfect i'm going to be able to play exactly what i want to be able to play and then as soon as i unplug my headphones i'm going to have a mint night because i'm either going to be in the booth watching them or i'm going to be on the floor dancing who's a dj that you would just love to warm up for you mean you may have already well, done it but yeah yeah i have i mean there's two really i mean i did cash money and that was that was fantastic because he was an absolute hero and i love the way he scratches like like if you hear cash money scratch you know it's him instantly he's got so like his own style so that was amazing um the other one was andy smith um known from porter's head and also did the document mixes he's such a lovely guy he's a good friend of mine but i remember when i first uh warmed up for him he came up and he was buying his drinks and he was like listening to my set he wasn't just sitting in the other room and he was like, oh, this is a great song. What's oh, I can't believe you played this. And it was like, we really engaged. Like, we hit something. And uh, and then, obviously, I, I was totally blown away by his set. And we've worked together for years since then. But, yeah, it has to be Andy Smith. Cool. I'm gonna, I don't quite know how to phrase this for you because the way it's phrased to different people makes more sense to them. So I'm going to have a go at phrasing it. And if it's not quite right... Just roll with it. So you you picked out like rock shots, didn't you? Like that that you did that that room, and and, and you you know really well known for it at the time. So I'm going to try and phrase it. If for some reason there was a rock shots reunion, but it was actually good, and you wanted to do it, and it was like this one like this one chance to to relive that kind of night. Do you know what I mean with those kind of people? 
my question is, is what would be the last record that you would play? Do you know what I mean? So I'm trying to get you to sort of feel the vibe of being somewhere that you felt comfortable and that you, you know what I mean? You, you had a, like a history with and a legacy with, and you were trying to almost define it by that last record. The way I'd play it out to a lot of house DJs is the Carl Cox, like last record at space kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? So I'm trying to put it into like a, a terminology that might resonate with you. So it's just like a, a last record that you would play somewhere, potentially if, you know, like back in March and you were doing a gig and it was locked down and you knew you might not be able to DJ out for nine months again. Just something that might be emotive as like a last record that you would really like to resonate with people. I think uh, one that I often use uh, without sounding too cheesy is just being honest. It's just such a, a party, please. And everyone knows it's, it's time to go home. Do you know what I mean? It's a candy statin. Sometimes I feel like I put my hands in the air. You know, it's just water tune. Obviously, the amazing thing about that song is she performs the bootleg version now live. That's, yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're going like, to do it on yeah. Show Me the Sample because it's such an interesting story, that record of how it came about and sourced the original bootleg and then the Frankie Knuckles part in it. And do you know what I mean? It's, it's, oh, I love it. It's such well, an interesting story. There's the, uh, what's her name again? Uh, she's just done a, version of it uh well not just it was a few years ago now florence in the machine um she's massive yeah i hate that version <laughs> it's awful but like the other thing is if you do play the frankie knuckles original you can see the death on people's faces where's, like yeah. where's the what's this yeah. where's the fucking book uh, you I, I that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right so, so the last thing i'm going to get you to do is curate sort of like a dream gig do you know what I mean so it's it's your gig you're creating it it can be anywhere you want it can be in an actual venue that you know it can be a generic like festival or uh, you know it can be a club it can be whatever you want it to be and you're going to put three acts on there you can DJ you can be smooth and terrell you can do whatever you want you can just create it and not be on it but I want three acts there's not so much a a warm-up, a middle and an end. There's more just like three core, like, you know, build acts. Um, but you ultimately, it's your fucking gig smooth, so you can do what the fuck you want. I just want you to curate it. It's in the moment right now, just something you would like to to, 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 to curate. So, smooth, where's it going to be? Well, obviously, they've got to be alive, right? They don't have to be. Nope, they're not alive. It's a dream <laughs> gig, man. You can do what you All want. All right. Uh, well, obviously, then I'd have James Brown. But where's it going to be? Where's it going to be? Where are you going to have it? Uh, where's it going to be? Uh, well, it'll have to be in Newcastle, wouldn't it, really? You know, um, It would be the hottest day that's ever happened in Newcastle. Um, <laughs> About 19 degrees. <laughs> it'd be in, in a massive field, yeah, with a huge stage and the best sound system ever. Amazing. Ever made. Down yeah. with that. Yeah, so we're having James Brown. And, yeah, and there's free beer for everyone. Amazing. Uh, and pl- millions and millions of toilets, and no one has to queue. Everyone's got their own toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Um, yeah, and then and then you've got um, probably Ray Charles straight after James Brown. Nice. And then um, I suppose I'd have to have some Smooth Terrell headlining it, wouldn't I? I love that. I love that. I love that. James Brown, Ray James Charles, Smooth Terrell. Right. Thank you so much. If people want to find out about more about you, if they want to find out more about the record labels that you run, if they want to find out more about Smooth and Terrell, if they want to find out more about the radio show, anything else where, you know, hit us with some links, hit us with some things people should Google, what's the name of the album, where can they find it, anything you want to talk about and promote, get it out there now. Pretty much everything uh, that we've mentioned, apart from my childhood, uh, is, is on smoothandterrell.com, uh, which is our main website. It's a very, very nice website. Um, you know, web- websites don't really get used anymore, you know what I mean? But you've got to have one. And when people do go on our website, they're like, oh, my God, it's amazing. I was on it this um, morning. Yeah, it's good. Because we've got this, <laughs> this, this guy... Uh, 
Tom, I think he's called. Uh, he's just like amazing. Who does our uh, web design? Yeah, but obviously we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're all all that rubbish. You know what I mean? Um, it's not hard to find us unless you can't spell our name, which is the other problem. It's smooth with a V E and Terrell double R E double L. So there you go. Yeah, my dyslexia kicks in there awfully, like when I'm trying to get stuff like that. Right, well, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me. I could have honestly spoke to you for hours about varying aspects and you know of your life and of your careers but it's been so interesting you've said so much stuff that's given me you know things to think about i'll re-listen to this um it's been great what i want you to do is give me a track um to play out the, the, the podcast um people have been listening to us have a chat i'm sure they're going to go and find out more about you it can be something you can you've mentioned it can be something new something old it can be you know something terrell reese it can be something you heard yesterday it can be something anything you want just name the track tell people why they should listen to it and then that's what we're going to play out with I'm going to pick, um, simply because we did a live broadcast the other day, and, and it was so good, the live version. It's probably my favourite song from the album, from the new album, but I'm going to pick, because it, it, it's got a bit of sampling in it as well, and it's got a bit of house music, it's got a bit of everything in that we do, soul. Uh, it's just a beautiful piece of music, and it's from our new album, Stratos Blur, and this one's called It's You. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for your time. Speak to you again soon. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are.